What I want to talk to you about is um, the landscape of Roman Britain in the sense of the countryside. And it's my um, proposition that I want to um, explore with you that since the 1990s, really, there's been a revolution in our knowledge of the countryside in Roman Britain. Roman Britain's always been fascinating for many people, and it's glad to see that it continues to fascinate an audience this evening. And part of that fascination is, I think, its perceived familiarity uh, between us and the Roman world. So when we see things like the uh, Orpheus mosaic here uh, from near Cirencester, um, we can relate to it through our own cultural knowledge and understanding. But what I want to do this evening is to argue for you that um, the revolution in our understanding of the countryside in Roman Britain is not just a revolution, as we'll see, in the amount of evidence that we've got, but this is leading to new ideas and uh, new ways of understanding cultural change in uh, Britain uh, 1,500 to 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't want to presume with um, an intelligent audience like you what your presumptions are about Roman Britain and the Romans, but I would suggest that it's commonly held that uh, if you take images of Roman Britain, people think about the Romans as people coming from the Mediterranean and settling um, in these islands, that when we think about the countryside, uh, we tend to think about uh, those people coming in and settling in big country houses, and I've got Fishbourne in Sussex on the screen here to illustrate that, and we think of those country houses very much as being familiar like, for instance, 18th century country houses, the um, sort of places that you visit with the National Trust. And alongside those um, big palatial uh, villa establishments, there is also a common uh, understanding, uh, actually a wrong understanding, that the density of settlement across Roman Britain was relatively low and that um, the landscape, particularly in the lowlands, was continued to be dominated by um, uncleared woodland uh, with uh, small parcels of uh, exploited land. Um, those, I would suggest, are common um, conceptions about the landscape of Roman Britain, which have been changed, as we'll see in a moment, um, by uh, recent archaeological work on a large scale. And to illustrate the way that that change has taken place, um, I start with a slide of um, actually the part of Cambridge where I live. I live just down here on Huntingdon Road. Those of you who are familiar with Cambridge, uh, Castle Hill's down here, Magdalen College and the city centre down there. As we head out on the Huntingdon Road, which is the Roman road from uh, Cambridge up towards uh, Godmanchester and the Roman North, um, we've had large-scale development in recent years. And uh, what that shows is that uh, we have a densely populated landscape. You, you can't see the uh, 
blobs on here in detail, but each of these blobs is a settlement of the Roman period. So we're not talking about uh, vast tracts of unexploited uh, landscape. Virtually everywhere that has been examined in recent years in lowland Britain has very high densities of sites. Um, you can't walk more than uh, 500 or uh, 1,000 metres uh, across the landscape of lowland Roman Britain without uh, being on top of a uh, Roman settlement site. Furthermore, the nature of the archaeology that has been exposed uh, in the recent past is dominated by small farms. Um, there is one uh, villa uh, in this area down by the park and ride site on Maddingley Road, if any of you are uh, Cambridge people. But the rest of the settlements are small farms connected by trackways and with areas of field systems in between. And as I say, that's not just the pattern in central or the edge of central Cambridge. It's a pattern that is replicated across the whole of lowland Britain. And uh, large-scale infrastructure projects, um, the building of HS2, uh, the upgrading of the A14 and currently the A428 in eastern England are replicating this pattern. This week I've been reading the uh, reports on the work on the A14 that was completed um, during uh, the COVID pandemic and there are literally uh, a dozen of these sites that have been discovered in the roadwork. So we are now seeing a densely occupied landscape and one that is highly diverse in land use. And just before I explore some aspects of that, I think it's worth pausing uh, to think um, how that knowledge has come about. Um, the first, in a sense, revolution in our knowledge of the density of landscape use um, comes in the... Uh, Mid, early to mid-20th century with the development of archaeological aerial photography, um, first developed uh, really uh, by pilots involved in the First World War and subsequently RAF pilots during the Second World War, who uh, recognised that as they flew over the landscape, um, they could see uh, the past features uh, shown in the crops and what we're seeing here is just a sample of a landscape in uh, eastern Yorkshire uh, where uh, the differential ripening of the crop is showing buried uh, field boundaries, settlement features, um, pits, and so forth. Now, that's something we've known for a very long time, for the best part of 100 years, but there's been a revolution in collecting this information, both um, through... Uh, different forms of aerial photography, now with drones and so forth, and satellite images, but also as mechanised agriculture is gradually eating into the buried landscape and uh, climate change is uh, enhancing periods of drought, which is when these uh, features uh, first show. The other very traditional way of gathering this information is simply walking across the landscape. Um, if you walk across ploughed fields where there are buried sites, generally speaking, artefacts from the sites come onto the surface. And the traditional way of doing this is to use um, 
amateur archaeologists or students to uh, sort of mass walk the landscape and map what is there. Highly exploitative, but also highly effective. Um, I've already mentioned development archaeology, and um, in this sense, uh, changes in the way that uh, archaeological work in advance of development takes place in this country, which happened um, in 1990, um, have meant that there is a lot more development-led archaeology now done than there was uh, 40 or 50 years ago. And in essence, um, if you are building a new housing estate, building a road, um, you have to assess whether there is archaeology there, and the developer then, if there is archaeology that is said to be significant, uh, then uh, pays for an excavation. So we get um, large-scale uh, stripping of landscape and their exploration. Um, this is the Northwest Cambridge development, the Cambridge University uh, project uh, dealt with by um, my colleagues in Cambridge Archaeological Unit, uh, where the area that is being built on to the northwest of Cambridge has been uh, essentially completely stripped. Large acreages of landscape explored through excavation which have just produced uh, massive amounts of information. And the other development that has taken place largely as a result of development pressure and also the development of technology is the use of um, ground-based geophysical survey uh, to map landscapes. Again, technology that has been around for quite a long time but has now been mechanised and computer imagery uh, or processing has enabled us to use uh, this on a much larger scale. The driver for this has been very much development-led archaeology where if you're going to build a road or a housing estate or a pipeline, uh, you really want to gather the information on what might be there at a very early stage. And um, the most common method of doing this is to use um, a gradiometers, instruments that measure uh, tiny variations in the Earth's magnetic field. And as with the aerial photographs, that enables you to see uh, what's buried beneath the surface. This is one of our PhD students uh, doing this across an agricultural landscape um, in eastern Yorkshire. You can see the sort of scale upon which um, she can work. And uh, pioneering work um, in this area um, has been done uh, by my friend and colleague Dominic Powsland um, on the uh, edges of the Vale of Pickering in uh, eastern Yorkshire, um, where uh, the grey represents the areas that have been surveyed. The dark features are buried archaeological features. So what we're seeing here is a trackway running across the landscape with settlement beside it, um, elements of the natural landscape with uh, field systems and uh, geological features, and st uh, settlements running all the way along here. And the remarkable thing about this is where we've had this type of um, archaeological uh, work done uh, in the past, over the last few years, um, virtually all the areas um, that we have surveyed or have been looked at have uh, revealed high densities of settlement. So this isn't uh, just 
where Dominic decided to do work because there was archaeology there. This is um, tens of hectares uh, where we're seeing the whole landscape and we're seeing the different phases of the landscape. So the trick with this is not just identifying where the settlements are, uh, what's geology and so forth, but trying to unpick it to see the different phases um, of uh, development. And um, this has really transformed um, the understanding of ancient landscapes, landscape of Roman Britain in particular, moving us away from um, an idea of isolated people in isolated parts of the landscape, um, but seeing it as a, a unified whole, a total landscape. The key um, with that is thinking what the implications are. And if we just pause for a moment, if we think about the social implications of a totally occupied landscape, we're not talking about uh, people, um, as for instance, living in um, the outback in Australia where you have to go for miles and miles and miles for social interaction with your neighbours. You're talking about a society with, uh, where you can... Uh, metaphorically go and borrow a pint of milk uh, from next door for a five-minute walk. And that changes the way we think about social interactions and social change in quite fundamental ways. And with this um, recent uh, boom in uh, landscape archaeology, we have also seen some fantastic academic work um, in drawing evidence together. And there have been a number of projects, the two really big projects that uh, I draw your attention to and encourage you to go and uh, look at are um, the 2007 work on the Atlas of Roman Rural Settlement in England by uh, Jeremy Taylor, uh, which drew together evidence from air photography, from field walking and from development to try and uh, get an overall picture of what was going on and explore um, regional variation in that. And the more recent um, Rural Settlement of Roman Britain uh, project, uh, published in three volumes, uh, it's a project uh, led by Mike Fulford uh, from uh, Reading University and Neil Holbrook from Cotswold Archaeology. And they've produced three bumper volumes that um, seek to give a general understanding of the nature of uh, settlement and uh, landscape across the province. Um, importantly, um, that Roman Rural Settlement Project um, is based... Uh, very much on excavated sites, particularly sites that have been excavated as a result of development pressures. And as a result, it has some inherent biases towards uh, areas where development has been most intensive. So my own home area around uh, Cambridge uh, figures very largely because of the uh, economic boom in that area, the extent of development. The area that I'm going to spend most of the lecture talking about this evening in uh, rural uh, Yorkshire has had less development in it. So the evidence from development-led excavations is much less. And, um, but just pause for a moment. The work 
that the Roman Rural Settlement Project dealt with. Um, they processed the evidence from 2,627 excavations. Um, the project data were finished about eight years ago, so there are many more excavations since then. That's complete change from uh, work even around 1990 when I wrote a synthesis of Roman Britain. And what the um, Rural Settlement Project was able to demonstrate is that there is immense regional diversity in the nature of the landscape, the nature of settlement, and so forth. Notwithstanding that regional diversity, there is a dominance of small farm sites. So the idea that the landscape is dominated by big um, sort of villas um, has completely gone. Uh, something less than one in a hundred sites are stone, elaborate stone uh, houses, villas. Uh, most of them are uh, small farmstead sites. They regionally vary, but most of them are enclosed by uh, ditches, dikes, and so forth. Um, and some of them are dispersed across the landscape. Others are more nucleated. And there is differentiation within them, so they're not all the same. Um, differentiation between uh, very complex sort of farms where there are clearly lots of families gathered together in one place, and in other areas, dominance by um, single-family farmsteads. And the other factor that has, uh, I think, changed very considerably is that alongside those um, farming sites, um, there is increasing evidence for um, nucleated settlements. I hesitate to use the word village, but uh, you get the general idea of people living uh, together, um, not on one farm, but in uh, communities uh, who were presumably engaged in agriculture as well as uh, sort of small-scale trading and so forth. Um, very often these nucleated settlements uh, running along trackways and roads. So a landscape which, um, far from being the sort of wooded uh, landscape with occasional big houses in it, is not only totally occupied, but is totally occupied by diversity of settlement, settlement that is uh, much more reminiscent, I think, of what we expect of uh, medieval settlement uh, than what we traditionally thought of as Roman settlement. The other thing that comes out of the, uh, these broad syntheses um, is uh, an understanding of the size of the population of Roman Britain. And um, the Roman Rural Settlement Project uh, suggests that the peak of numbers of people living in Roman Britain was in the second century uh, AD, uh, when there were about two million people in the countryside on their estimates. I'm afraid I veer um, further than they do. Um, some years ago, I suggested that population was in the region of um, three and a half to four million, and I put the peak later. I think they're probably right that the peak is earlier, but I would um, suggest that uh, the population of Roman Britain was probably uh, nearer the four million mark than the two million mark. And that puts it in the sort of area that we don't return to in the landscape of England and Wales um, until the... Uh, 
time around doomsday and a little bit after. The other thing that's important for this large-scale work that is sort of giving us a general understanding of what's going on is that um, the balance between different sectors of the population is now fairly firmly understood. And uh, again, going back to sort of traditional ideas, we tended to think about the Roman army as being a major feature of the population of Britain, the towns as being a major feature of the population. It's now pretty clear that um, this is largely an agrarian society. Probably something over 90% of the population lived in uh, the countryside. Um, only something like 3.5% of the population are accounted for by soldiers and people um, on the frontier. And um, the other 6% or so are sort of urban dwellers, both in big cities like Roman Londinium and down to the uh, much smaller uh, urban sites um, that uh, are dotted around uh, the countryside um, and acted as the administrative foci for Roman Britain. Now, the trend of those synthetic studies has been very much to make broad general statements looking at regional variation, population size, the nature of production and the economy. What I think it also does is provide us with windows into um, past lives and uh, ways in which we can change our understanding of different aspects of the countryside. And I want to uh, use uh, the second part of this lecture not to make broad general statements about the landscape of Roman Britain, but to focus largely on uh, fieldwork with which I've been engaged, mostly in um, North and East Yorkshire, to explore how this revolution in uh, knowledge um, is changing the way that we think about individuals' lives and social change. And um, as I said in the introduction, my prime interest in many ways is in thinking about how societies change and how culture changes um, under the influence of uh, Roman power. And um, I want to do this by looking first at um, how we understand one particular villa landscape. Um, I then want to look at um, some elements of uh, rural diversity in uh, landscapes in uh, the Yorkshire area. Um, and then come to think about uh, networking and how people uh, related to one another through the landscape. And I'm going to um, return to um, the villa as a concept um, as my first case study, um, focusing on thinking about what villas mean what they represent. And again, if we go back to the sort of uh, understandings that were uh, common when um, I was being taught Roman Britain um, at the University of London in the 1970s, um, we have um, a general view that um, the 
Roman Empire generated economic growth that the arrival of a monetary economy um, enabled uh, people to uh, engage in uh, profit-making agriculture. And the profit-making agriculture led to aspirations towards uh, expressing identity through um, becoming as Roman as possible, what we used to call Romanization. And um, the general assumption was that if you acquired wealth in Roman Britain, um, what you would naturally do in the countryside is to uh, try and emulate uh, the Roman way of doing things by building a villa to live in. And um, this was based on an underlying assumption that the culture represented by the Mediterranean was superior to that of the indigenous populations of Britain. Um, today, we would uh, question a lot of those assumptions about the natural choice and superior culture and um, emphasise, I think, that uh, the building of villas was something that was a matter of cultural choice. Whatever we think about uh, why people chose that, uh, what has become clear over the last 40 or 50 years is that most of the villas that we see in Britain are a result of an evolution of the sites through time, uh, moving from Iron Age style landscapes dominated by roundhouses, uh, usually in enclosed settlements, um, through building in timber and then in stone, and the stone buildings gradually uh, growing um, as the uh, estate becomes more, um, more wealthy, more profitable. Um, that's important, and it's important to bear in mind that whatever, wherever else we're going with this discussion, um, that the underlying pattern that is repeated time and time again is that there is a very strong element of continuity of settlement locations uh, in Roman Britain. There is churn, there is change. Some sites die out and others are newly replaced. Um, but there is no evidence whatsoever for any complete landscape change um, as a result of uh, Roman annexation, Roman power. But if we want to understand that process um, beyond the, if you like, the place where the people lived at the centre of the villa, um, we need to um, think further about this. And I want to use as an example here um, a very wonderful site up on the Yorkshire Wolds at Rudston. And um, if you haven't seen the Rudston mosaics, um, do go to Hull Museum and uh, look at them. They are some of the finest uh, sets of uh, mosaics from Roman Britain. Um, I've got here uh, from Ian Stead's excavations in the 1960s, an image of uh, the mosaic uh, with the charioteer at the centre and the seasons uh, in the corners. Wonderful um, examples of uh, the art of mosaic in late Roman Britain. Um, 
and uh, David Neal and Stephen Koch's uh, placing of some of the other mosaics within the buildings. So these are the sorts of things we see um, with uh, rooms probably used for dining, for entertaining, and bathing suite. Uh, people in this settlement um, taking on Roman ways of doing things, Roman ways of dining, Roman ways of bathing, and uh, Roman styles of decoration. But the excavations at Rudston in the 1930s and then in the 1960s uh, focused simply on the buildings, the mosaics, and so forth. If we are able to pan out from uh, the villa excavation there, um, in the 1990s, um, Cathy Sturts and the Royal Commission Historical Monuments um, used the then available air photographic evidence to map the uh, landscape. Now, you won't be able to see the detail of this on here. Um, I'll come to a closer view in a moment. And uh, what we're able to see from that is that the pre-Roman landscape in this part of um, eastern Yorkshire is dominated by um, very large uh, property boundaries um, represented by enormous earthworks, the so-called Yorkshire dikes, um, which divide the landscape into blocks. And settlement is largely in the pre-Roman period uh, focused along uh, those boundaries, leaving the areas in between as large open fields. And um, I think it's reasonable to conclude that those large open fields were um, ranges for uh, stock, probably sheep, uh, where you could uh, keep them enclosed, um, but in a communal area, and you live to one side of it. And what, uh, what we've been able to do by using um, further more recent air photographic survey and uh, geophysical survey, um, largely the work here of um, one of our PhD students, Eleanor Mao, is to um, map what's going on in the vicinity of the villa here. What we see is that the large um, range uh, for uh, running sheep on is at some stage um, divided into uh, small fields, that the one block of landscape is completely divided up into fields. Now, that looks like um, it's a pattern of um, privatisation of the land. The communal sheep run is being divided up into uh, field systems. And by uh, placing the 1960s excavation in the context of the geophysical survey and using the evidence from the excavation, we can... Um, unpick the story of what's going on here. I have to say that our initial um, expectation was that um, we would see the villa uh, related to um, the dividing up of the landscape. So big landowner encloses the landscape, builds a villa, sort of privatising the land and moving from communal way of doing things in the Iron Age to a Roman way of doing things with private property uh, in the early Roman period. When you put it all together, what we discover is it's a more complicated story. 
Yes, the landscape is divided up, but it's not divided up at the time of the Roman conquest. It's divided up three or four generations later. So there's a, it's not the Romans arrive, the landscape's divided up, someone takes it over. It's a more gradual process. And secondly, it's clear that the division of the landscape takes place the best part of 100 years before the villa is constructed. So this is not a question of gradual accumulation of wealth. It's a question, as I would see it, as um, a series of cultural decisions by the people who are living here, not only how to divide the landscape up and use it for farming and so forth, but the way that they want to express their identity, the way they want to live. And it's a long period of multi-generational change rather than one of um, a simple sort of the Romans arrive and things change. What I would also emphasise here is that uh, what we see in that uh, mosaic and the ways of living are a series of very deliberate cultural choices that uh, it's not simply a question of emulating uh, things coming from outside. It's reinterpreting them um, in a contemporary way. The second uh, example that I want to take with you is to look at um, the density and diversity of landscape and how it changes um, in an area of lowland East Yorkshire, um, in the area between Hull and York. Um, The site is a place called Hayton, um, the A1079 running from Hull to York diagonally across the screen here. And as in the instance of Uh, the uh, Cambridge area that we looked at before, um, through archaeological work, um, largely in this case aerial photography and geophysics, we've been able to map the density of settlements. And each one of these rings represents um, a farm site in this landscape. Again, incredibly densely occupied. um, But but in this landscape, um, the the settlements are largely focused on a stream that is running through the landscape down here. And the settlements are on the gravel beside the stream with the heavier land to either side being set aside for fields. So we can see, the, if you like, the economic geography of the landscape in this. And um, here we see um, transformation um, around about AD 70, lasting for 10 or 15 years. The Roman army arrive. About 500 soldiers are based here. Um, the soldiers have a fort, the fort is to one side of these existing farmsteads, but it looks as though, um, from the detail of the air photography, that people gathered around the fort. Um, There is a large roundhouse just outside the fort, so um, people are cozying up, if you like, to the Roman army. Um, When the fort moves on with Roman uh, military deployments elsewhere, Very soon after, the Roman road is laid out, running straight through the landscape here, forming, and we'll come back to this in a moment, um, something of a crossroads with the traditional routeway along the valley. And um, you get a shift uh, of populations uh, beginning to form one of these nucleated village sites along the side of the road here on one side of the river. Within the Um, landscape itself, the farmsteads 
have quite different histories. We haven't excavated all of them, but we've collected material from several of them. Um, the one we've excavated over here um, shows a transition towards what you might describe as a sort of small villa. Um, it has a bathhouse, um, it has stone buildings and so forth, and engages with the Roman economy. Um, others of them seem to have uh, kept their distance. Some of them die out, uh, but others of them also uh, develop into more uh, elaborate uh, types of Roman-style buildings. So we see cultural change, but it's an evolution, and it's an evolution that is largely promoted, I think, by the development of the road network and uh, connections to outside, rather than uh, the traditional view that the, the military change things. But if we pan out a little bit further in this same landscape, um, the Hayton study area was up here. Um, a few years before that, we did work uh, down in the Holmon Spalding Moor area, just a few miles to the uh, south. The Roman road running from Bruff runs up through here. And what this map shows is the known distribution, um, partly from uh, portable antiquity scheme data, of uh, Roman coins through the landscape. And the coins act as a sort of uh, measure for um, the distribution of sites and interaction with the Roman economy. And what's remarkable is that the Hayton area and the areas along the road have high levels of interaction, whereas the Holmon Spalding Moor area, although it's not um, deserted, has very little interaction at the level of the coin-using economy. But at the same time, that area is densely occupied by settlement sites, um, settlement sites represented by enclosures and so forth. There's a lack of field systems here. Uh, but what we seem to have is an economy that is um, very specialised. In the late Iron Age, this is an area where they produced iron. In the Roman period, the iron deposits from the uh, bog ore in the valley lowland valley system seems to have been worked out and they move to producing pottery so we've got a pottery kiln one of a high number here that pottery is being distributed across the whole of northern england but the um if you like the economic benefit from it as far as we can see is not flowing back into that local area it's presumably going somewhere else and that suggests um, that uh, we're able to distinguish different life ways and what I would suggest that we're seeing in the Holm area is a landscape that is dominated by woodland management, charcoal production, the use of wood for potting and so forth, uh, very different from the agricultural landscapes up here and arguably um, under the um, control of someone who's living elsewhere so that the, the money is not flowing back into that landscape. So... What that illustrates for us is, if you like, a diversity of different uh, approaches that are taking place, um, even very locally within Roman Britain. And can we use that sort of evidence for understanding um, how culture develops and the connections between different parts of the landscape? What I would suggest is that we can 
And if we go back to the Hayton area, um, we're looking here um, up the valley into the Yorkshire Wolds. Uh, the area we've been looking at just now is just down bottom here. And just on the bottom edge of the screen is where we dug uh, at the Burnby Lane site, the site that has the bathhouse and a small sort of villa-type settlement. What we think is happening here is that there is a traditional routeway, if you like, for driving stock from summer pasture up on the top of the Wolds, those large sort of ranges we were looking at earlier and we'll return to in a moment, um, down to the lowlands uh, for uh, sort of lambing and presumably for sale into the uh, Roman economy. And that, that um, routeway um, is one of the networks uh, that we can trace through the archaeology. It looks like it's a predominantly sheep-rearing economy. And interestingly, alongside those quite uh, Roman-style ways of uh, living um, in the Burnby Lane site we excavated, there are also a large number of deposits of um, feasting debris from uh, sheep. Um, not just discarded, this example here is one of my favourites, where there are, they've had a feast, um, they have buried um, three uh, young sheep's heads um, with the forelimbs of the sheep just underneath the nose, and they've then filled the pit with clay. So what we're seeing is something that's quite difficult to imagine what's going on, but it's very deliberate, and it seems to have um, sort of religious and cultural connotations. So the, the sheep are not only important economically, they're also uh, important sort of symbolically and um, arguably in religious terms. And um, if we follow that uh, route way down to the Roman road, um, the settlement we were talking about was this one, um, there's an area next to the Roman road where there is no evidence for settlement. It's completely empty. We've done geophysics on it. There's nothing showing the air photographs. But there are very large numbers of uh, metal objects that have been found there. And um, the way that we interpret this is that being connected up to the walls, when you bring your sheep down uh, seasonally to market, um, you're probably gathering with people from elsewhere, and there's probably something, a seasonal fair, a seasonal marketplace taking place in the fields beside the Roman road, where the um, sheep can be uh, sold on to the traders who are using the road system. That brings in all kinds of other stuff that gets uh, sort of uh, lost um, in the fields in the fair. Um, I always think of um, Thomas Hardy's uh, sort of uh, seasonal fair at uh, Way Hill um, uh, in this term, that uh, although there's absolutely nothing in the field, you can imagine that for a few, few days, uh, perhaps in the uh, late summer or early autumn, everyone comes in, and that becomes a sort of focus for uh, people within the landscape. And at the other end of that uh, route, up on the Wolds itself, um, on one of these uh, settlements that seems to be um, focused on the edges of a large uh, 
sort of range for running sheep. Um, we have um, the deposition of bullion coins of different periods. They're not a hoard. They are individual coins that are buried within the landscape, which I would suggest represent the wealth going back up into these upland areas. But in these upland areas, they're not being used um, in the Roman way. They're being used as uh, sort of something that we don't quite know what to do with. So they're being buried and probably being buried as a matter of choice, again, in uh, what appears to be a quasi-religious way. So these people are networked with the lowlands, but they're behaving in a way um, that isn't, if you like, Roman. It is more uh, related to their um, indigenous uh, choices, indigenous cultures. And not very far away from that site, um, literally half a mile away, uh, we excavated another part of that um, boundary settlement where we found um, another sort of what you might call cultural hybrid it's a hall-type building. It's not a Roman villa, if you like, but it's using Roman building methods. The central work hall, a couple of private areas. Um, a communal-type building, rather than the sorts of things that we see nearby in the Rudston Villa of private spaces and so forth. Now, this is an interesting hybrid because it reflects communal living as was it existence in the area of the Iron Age, um, written in stone, if you like, and written in stone in a very visible part of the landscape. But it's not a, either a Roman or an indigenous style, it's a hybrid, uh, which is a hybrid of choice. And I would also draw attention to the fact that um, these types of big hall buildings are actually very common within Roman Britain. They are one of the most common forms of building. Um, very often, we don't have good evidence for them. There's a site in Surrey here uh, where the, uh, we have very good evidence for the survival, and this is a reconstruction of one of the sites we dug in East Yorkshire. And the point I would want to make here is that this is timber architecture being used for high status display, massive buildings, um, communal buildings that were uh, important for the people living in them, but which represent something that is a creation of the Roman provinces, Roman Britain, rather than uh, the uh, Mediterranean ideas coming in. And I would further emphasize that these are Habitation buildings. There was a lovely press release recently from the uh, newly discovered Roman site at, um, in uh, the, the East Midlands, where um, Historic England talked about um, one of these structures having a bath put in it, and it was a, the earliest uh, British barn conversion. And I'd almost exploded uh, with uh, uh, sort of. Uh, fury, because these things aren't barns, these are great halls, and what we're seeing in the um, uh, example that recently come up in uh, 
these Midlands is the elaboration and the combination of a Roman way of bathing with a very important British way of showing your status. Because these buildings are using huge trees. They're massive. Um, they're like uh, the scale of medieval tithe barns. So they're big high status things uh, which represent a way that these people were showing to their neighbours and other people passing by their choices in the way that they wished to live. Now, in this evening's talk, I have quite deliberately focused on um, bits of the culture of Roman Britain that are arguably um, less classical and uh, more diverse than you had probably um, expected. I do want to finish by emphasising that that's not the whole period of Roman Britain. There were people in Roman Britain who chose to do things in a very classical Mediterranean way. And I used, um, thanks to the Boxford History Project, um, the remarkable mosaic found four or five years ago, um, this site in Wiltshire, uh, which is uh, telling the story of uh, classical mythology um, in uh, the mosaic. And what this stands for is the fact that there were people in Roman Britain who chose to adopt Mediterranean ways, and when they did it, they did it as well as anyone else in Western Europe. But for me, what I hope I've shown you is that there are other aspects of Roman Britain which are showing different cultural choices. A Roman Britain which is perhaps um, less Roman and less familiar than you had expected. And that's my main message for you. That if we uh, quote L.P. Hartley, the go-between, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. I hope you've seen something of those differences this evening. Thank you very much. Professor Millet, thank you very much. Lots of fun ideas to discuss. Got a lot of questions online for you. So I'll start with a couple here and then I'll open it up to the floor with my colleague who has a roving mic for you. So first question for you. In Northumberland, there are suggestions that modern parish boundaries in the rural areas may have Iron Age origins. Um, do the sites that you mentioned support that idea? That's a very complicated and very difficult question. Good. Um, there is some evidence that there are continuations of boundaries, but those are largely in areas where the landscape is very constrained. So if you have a constrained upland valley, then the boundary that you had in the Iron Age is probably going to be the same one as we've got today. That's not necessarily the same as meaning that uh, there has been a direct continuity. And uh, for the most part, the evidence of discontinuities over long periods of time um, is stronger than the evidence of continuity. But in the upland areas, and upland Northumberland is one, uh, you can see why there might be those. 
Um, I've got another one. Is it compulsory for developers to disclose that there is archaeological importance where they plan to develop in the sites that they plan um, to develop? It is effectively compulsory in the sense that uh, if you apply for planning permission to do a housing development, the planning authority will want to see the evidence of whether there or not there is archaeology there. And their planning advisors will uh, monitor the quality of the work. So um, it's not... I, I doubt that anyone would really want to get around it, but um, uh, if they did, there are mechanisms to, to police that, if I can put it that way. Do we have any questions in the room? Got a mic for you. Yes, Mark Willingale. Um, from your view of the population and the landscape, would you say, therefore, that the image of the landscape is more one of cleared fields without hedgerows and things, quite clear, patchy landscape, and then blocks of woodlands on the hills? Yeah. So that it's much more open than one would imagine, really. I, th um, I would uh, largely agree with that. I think that hedgerows were probably important. Um, the site at Shipton Thorpe that I just touched on, uh, we had a waterhole, and in the bottom of the waterhole we had hedge clippings. Now, you don't very often find that, and um, a hedge doesn't show very well in air photographic evidence. You get the ditch, but not the bank and the hedge. So, yes, I'm, my image of Roman Britain is largely uh, small fields for arable and pasture, but I would, uh, with ditched boundaries, but a lot of them with hawthorn hedges and so forth on them. Thank you for your talk. I was interested in what you said about the individual coins that were found. Yeah. Um, I was wondering why you thought that there might be some religious aspect to that, rather than, for example, they just got dropped there. Yeah. Um, on most of these sites, um, you get low-value coins, bronze coins, and they're the money that drops out of people's pockets. Uh, what, and those are generally found in the occupied areas. Um, the image that I passed over quite quickly there showed that these are all silver coins um, of various dates, so it's not a hoard. And they are buried not within the settlement itself, but on the edges of the fields around about. And there's a lot of evidence accumulating that people were, for reasons that we don't fully understand, quite deliberately going out and burying things. So at the building with the, the hall that we excavated, just out at the back there, there was a, a nice brooch, complete courtyard, nothing in it, just a little hole and the brooch put in the ground. And what I, my reading of this is that what's going on is that these things are um, important, they're coming in, but they, people didn't really know quite how to relate to them. So they are um, putting them outside the way they live, not inside where they live. And I see that as probably having some sort of religious focus to it, but it, highly controversial. You could, you could feel free to differ. <laughs> Oh, hi. Um, thanks. Very, very interesting talk. Um, 
You've used the word settlements a lot. Um, does that just mean single houses, or, or can it, is it a fairly elastic term? Can it mean groups of houses? And if we get into, say, the third century, a couple of hundred years after, after the actual military uh, conquest, who's living in them? Is it, is, it, is it the descendants of the people who are living in Britain at the time of the Roman conquest? Is, is it uh, possibly a descendants of soldiers? Is, is there, if you like, a colonisation in that sense? Um. There's very little evidence for colonisation, but the, there are odd sites where you can say that might be someone coming in from outside. Uh, but for the most part, these are the descendants of the people who'd lived in the country at the time of invasion. The, um, the first part of your question was... Sorry. Well, uh, when you say settlements... You... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, well, I'm using it in a portmanteau sense. Some of them are... Uh, isolated individual family farms. Some of them seem to be uh, what you see in the West Country, Middle Ages, you know, clusters of farms. And some of them are these sort of more nucleated settlements where they're presumably not kin-related, but they're people just juxtaposed in living. And one of the things that's come out from this mass of archaeological evidence is that it's highly varied. So different areas of the country, different patterns. And... uh, Locally, as you could see in the example I was giving, uh, differences just in a neighbourhood. I'll just take one from online again. Um, this relates to the Gallo-Roman coin hoard that was found in Jersey in 2012. Um, this person asks, what do you make of this find and how do you think it changed the understanding of Roman Britain? Um, coin hoards are very complicated. Um, some of them are clearly people's savings being hidden for safekeeping. Um, Some of them may be related to what we were talking about with individual coins, that where there is a religious aspect to it. Um, That huge uh, hoard has been incredibly important for understanding the production of those coinages and so forth. I'm not sure, because I don't know the detail of the fine spot, where I would place it on the there for safekeeping, there for religious purposes. Thank you. I'm fascinated by the division of the land at Rudston. Mm. Um, Are we looking at people who previously had a communal field where they kept their sheep, are they then going over to agricultural production, I mean, agrarian stuff? And if so, what relationship do you think they had with the people in the big house? Um, We don't know, um, because we haven't been able to uh, sample those fields, and that's obviously what needs to be done next. Um, My guess from the scale of the fields and so forth is if people moving over to agrarian production and that's probably to do with the demand for wheat and so forth. My own guess is that this is um, annexation of communal land and uh, one suspects from what one has seen in other historical periods when that's taken place that that would not be a situation that wasn't was without tension if I can put it that way. That is all the time we have this evening. Please join me in thanking Professor Milton again. Thanks very much.